Hey, friends. Welcome to another episode of That Sounds Fun. I'm your host, Annie F. Downs. Happy Monday. It's a normal day to get a podcast, but we're right in the middle of the 12 days of Christmas. The music in the background is from our good buddy, Mr. Phil Wickham. Make sure you grab a copy of his Christmas album. It's called Christmas. So you can find it. It's excellent. I hope you will really enjoy it. We're so grateful that he is letting us use that as the background for our Christmas party, our 12 days in a row. Today on the podcast is my friend, Sarah Bessie, one of my favorite authors. Her newest book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, A Story of Unlearning and Relearning God, is just recently out. And Sarah is just dear to me. She's smart. She is kind. And um, she has had quite a year. As many of you know, she lost one of her best friends, Rachel Held Evans. We all lost Rachel and her work um, in May. And so processing that grief is part of the holidays, isn't it? And so I'm thankful that Sarah chose to talk about that with us and a million other lovely, beautiful things. So part of our Christmas party continues today with our friend and amazing author, Sarah Bessie. Why don't you have your own podcast yet, Sarah Bessie? Um, we are working on one for evolving faith, okay. mainly because I don't think I have enough to say to have my own stuff. I mean, here's the trick. I'm not the one who talks on my podcast, Sarah. Oh my gosh. This is just exactly it. So Jeff and I are going to do an evolving faith one where we're going to have the um, speakers and the people who have been on there to come in and talk. And then Jeff is a journalist. So he asks really good questions. And my job is to sit there and go, "Mm mm-hmm. So tell me how (laughs) you and Jeff became friends. Uh, Through Rachel. Oh, okay. Yeah. Rachel Held Evans is the, is the connecting point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. She's like, well, she's the, I think, access or connecting point for mm-hmm. a lot of us, right? Mm-hmm. So, And just for our friends who are listening to know, you and I discussed ahead of time that, that we were going to talk about this for a minute. So I'm not bamboozling you with questions about a friend who passed away. <laughs> but tell me a little bit what it is like to spend the last, I mean, eight months. She died in May, correct? Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And so you've spent May to December. So seven months honoring her and living without her. What has that been like to have to publicly do that? <laughs> um, you know, it was, it, it's, well, I mean, I guess there's a lot of different words you could use for it. But um, I think probably the main, main thing I felt initially, I mean, again, you're completely heartbroken and devastated. You have your own um, private grief that you're going mm-hmm. through. But I mm-hmm. think that in the immediate aftermath, my instinct, along with uh, a number of people whom Rachel knew and loved, was to really um, protect her family mm-hmm. and uh, and to protect her parents and her husband and her children and her sister. And so, in a way, it was easier for us to publicly step into, you know, almost like a, a place that could absorb mm. the collective grief from just so many people. I mean, the outpouring of loss and grief. Rachel was a friend to so many people, um, you know, both actually literally, but also through her work, right? People felt really seen in Rachel's books and in her work and even on Twitter, for heaven's sake. And the loss was just so um, astronomical that in a lot of ways, um, we, Jeff and, and Nadia uh, Boltzweber and I all felt very much almost like a pastoral obligation to care for people in yeah. that. Yeah. So how do you balance that, Sarah? How do you balance? It's something that I, I have not um, lost a friend, but I have lost relationships and lost and lost some normalcy of my life. And I've had to privately grieve. But then there's also a public thing that I kind of didn't engage in publicly, like when I had to walk away from some things that really mattered to me, because I just didn't know how to grieve publicly and privately. I don't know that I did it well, or necessarily even, you know, I don't know if there is a right way. I know that after the funeral, I had, uh, I felt like that was when I kind of got a chance to curl away, you know, a little bit and have have that private time to really grieve. And I've held a lot of that very close, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to myself or, or to the people who know know me really well. I think that getting through the first Evolving Faith was another big Which milestone. is a conference y'all created together. Yeah. 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 Rachel and I created Evolving Faith together. And so I was in a lot of ways dreading getting to that moment, didn't know if we were going to be able to manage. Um, I felt really lonely. Mm-hmm. And then being on the, but on the other side of that too, there was this very deep knowing that I had that Rachel would not have wanted 
you know, evolving faith or, or anything to become this, you know, never ending funeral either. Sure. Um, you know, she frankly would have been pissed. If <laughs> <laughs> She'd have been like, move forward. Let's go. Yeah, we got exactly, stuff to talk about. Exactly. And so in a lot of ways, kind of walking that through alongside of other people who knew and loved her. Um, I think that we will be navigating this new terrain, mm-hmm. you know, in a, in a lot of different ways. And some days are easier. Some days are really hard. Yeah. I, I told you um, not long after everything happened, after Rachel passed, that one of my biggest takeaways was calling people that I loved that day and telling them what they meant to me. Mm-hmm. There are so many people in our, particularly in our workspace, that other writers, other podcasters, other speakers and preachers, that I just wasn't sure that they knew how much I needed their teamwork and how much I appreciated their teamwork. What's been one of your big, takeaways for yourself in this process? Are you even to where you can think through that kind of stuff? Um, I'm not sure that I have gotten there yet, to yeah. be perfectly honest. Right. I I think that, um, you know, a lot of what we do is try to wrangle meaning yeah. out of things, right? Or right. try to name it or find language for it. Um, I'm still struggling to find language for it. Yeah. Um, you know, the the trauma, the devastation, the loss, the loneliness, um, but I think that what you took out of that is very similar to what I'm hearing from a lot of people, right? Just this longing to make sure you don't leave anything unsaid, um, that you get a chance to say the things that you needed to say, whether and not necessarily even just to the people who you live your life with, but to the people who are leading you or or guiding you or are whose work has mattered to you. Yes. Um, I had a very similar experience of being like, oh my gosh, what if I never got a chance to to say that? And so then you do want to go back and and uh, and have a chance to actually name it and articulate it instead of just always, you know, hoping that they know how, how much their work meant. Has it changed your Christmas season to have this loss have been such an integral part of your year? Oh, absolutely. You know, absolutely. I th- you know, and one one thing that I, you know, just even tangibly, I guess, is I usually write around Advent quite a lot uh-huh. in those themes of like hope and peace and joy and love. And honestly, this year when I sat down to try to write about that, I just, I just did not have it. <laughs> they felt like really big, uh, beautiful, gorgeous words that I am longing for. And I know that the whole world is longing for. And there's a lot of tradition around them, of course, as well. But I just didn't have words for them. I wasn't in that space mm-hmm. um, to be able to say anything about joy or or even hope sometimes. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, anytime you're still in that first year after a big loss, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm one of Rachel's friends. I mean, you can't, you know, you consider the loss to her children and to sure. her husband and her parents. And I think that there will just be a ripple effect of how, you know, it just, it will, it just, just, just change everything. And so one of the things that I ended up being really drawn to even over this Advent season was the um, Carmelite nuns actually use the themes of waiting and accepting Hmm. and journeying and birthing. And that to me, I was like, oh, okay, you know what I can, I think this year, instead of the themes of Advent that I've always loved and have always been meaningful to me, I think I'm actually needing to sit and light candles that talk about waiting Mm. and about accepting. Um, I think that's more the space where I'm at. Can we read that nun, the Carmelite nuns work somewhere or how are you following along with their teaching on Advent? Well, you know, I came across it actually um, in some of the research and work that I was doing for my own stuff. And so, um, yeah, I can't remember where it was I came across it. We'll find it. But we, I'll, have, we have a I'll, Jenna yeah, to do all the kind of research. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. This is why Jenna was born for these days, Sarah Bessie. I Jenna know. I was like, I'm literally looking research. at a stack of like, I have like 17 <laughs> books beside me. And I'm like, which one was it? <laughs> How many were you doing it when you were writing your new book? Uh, no, actually, I um, I do an e-newsletter for people. And one thing that I often include is like a, a devotional. And so it's yeah. just part of the, uh, the subscribers. Girl, um, you don't play around with that e-newsletter. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah, tell me why. <laughs> because, you know, marketing people will tell authors, you need to be sending out a newsletter. And that's not why you're doing it. And I can't bring myself to do it because I just can't sit down and spend time that way. But you and Hatmaker both send really, and, and Emily Freeman, send really robust and beautiful and enjoyable e-newsletters. Tell me why. And tell me why you love it so much. Well, 
I, I mean, you know, I did start off initially because people were like, oh, you know, you need to go and have an e-newsletter or whatever else. But uh, what I found is that it scratched the itch that um, that I missed from blogging. Oh, sure. I think it's what it is, right? Because I came up in the blogging era. Um, that was even how Rachel and I met initially 10 uh-huh. years ago. And so, and that's how I met Hatmaker. That's how I met, you know, a lot of, yeah. a lot of people. And so I think that um, the thing I liked about blogging was the presupposition of relationship. You assumed people knew you and that they knew your story and that even if they didn't like what you had to say today, they'd be around tomorrow. Yeah. And there was a sense of like community around it. There was commenting and interaction and you got to this sense of, of almost um, relationship that was there. Mm. I do miss that a lot, by the way. Right? Yeah. It is really fun. And people would just all of a sudden hit reply and I'd be like, oh, right. they're still there. Look at all these people still here. And so it just, you know, continued to morph. And now, you know, Field Notes has just become, you know, a less pressure kind of writing and yet connecting Mm -hmm. as well with people. And so, yeah, I just, I really genuinely enjoy it. It's fun to experiment with new things, to write new things. Like, for instance, the Advent stuff. I wouldn't put that necessarily into a book, but you know, a weekly Advent meditation and sending out some prayers and scripture and doing that alongside of each other. That's, that's Mm. a lot of fun for me. Yeah. How do you, do you send it out once a month? Like no matter what, are you just good and disciplined about it? I am pretty, pretty disciplined about it. That's what's wrong. You send it out even weekly. (laughs) Do you? I do now. Yeah. It's kind of funny. It's, I think because it got to be such a huge email that I was like, I think I need to break this up because. Oh, because you were putting so much. Yes, oh, too much. But my you're, you would be amazing at it. Are you kidding me? I, I it's just, a fun place to share all the stuff, right? right? The, the shows you're watching and the things you're thinking about and the, the books you're reading. And I mean, you would be great at that. Okay. I'll really pray about it for 2020. I mean, by pray about it, I mean, <laughs> talk to people and see what, if I, we can really pull it off. Hey, <laughs> speaking of shows we both watch, I need you to talk about The Crown. Have you finished season three? I have not finished season three. I'm only about uh, four episodes in. Okay. And um, oh my gosh, I just feel like sometimes you could just pause it and it looks like a painting. Yes. The cinematography of it is so beautiful. It's beautiful. And I and I know that it's real history. I also know it's fictionalized. But let me tell you, I have convinced myself that every conversation on The Crown is exactly what was said between Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? Listen, it feels real in my heart. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's all that matters. And here's what I'm saving for Christmas break that I think is a big favorite of yours is Anne with an E. Oh, I'm so glad. You I am, loved I am it, right? I'm a big fan of that show. I do. You know, which I know surprises people because I'm a bit of an Ella Montgomery purist. Right. And I have always loved um, the the books in particular, but, you know, the 80, 85 miniseries with Megan Follows, of course. Yes. And people got really upset about this adaptation because it does add new characters and it brings uh, it, it brings up the lowlights and kind of mm-hmm. downplays the highlights. And ah. the thing I really liked about the show that I think you will really like, one person called it like Anne of Green Gables Madrash. Okay. Like it's this reimagining almost in the spaces between the text. Yes. And so it plays up the things that would have been implicit to readers at that time. Um, and yet maybe wasn't explicit when you're reading it for us right now. So yeah. all that to say, it is a delight to me and I love it so hard. You're the reason <laughs> I'm even considering it because I'm a purist and Ellen Montgomery purist. And then when you transitioned over and told everybody you love the show, I was like, well, if Sarah loves it, she's Canadian. So she's far more inclined to have strong feelings because it's Prince Edward Island. If she's in, I can be in. Listen, I was so predisposed to hate it with my whole heart. Like I remember when they even, when they even announced that the one of the producers from Breaking Bad was doing it, I went on like a Twitter rant. I was like, "Back up off uh-huh, my, uh-huh. my things." And I just have been so pleasantly surprised. The girl who plays Anne, there's a couple of episodes for sure in that first season that are a bit of a misstep in my opinion, but I mean, at the end of the day, it is weird and wonderful and and just really dives in. I think too, if people get a little bit too precious sometimes about source material, like we have a thousand Jane Austen adaptations and retellings and, you know, ones that have been kind of spun out. And I think that Anne was due for that. Mm -hmm. I think it was time to to have a a, a different adaptation. We had to loosen our grip on, on the 1985 version. 
Well, I think I love the I love the 1985 version, and I I've still you know I think it's probably still my my favorite for mm-hmm. sure. But one thing that this one does really well is they lean into what made Anne weird oh, and off-putting to people. Because you would you would read in the books, for instance, that she there was something alien about her to people in Avonlea. Like they didn't like her. They didn't mm. like they didn't understand her. And that's why Marilyn Matthews' love and acceptance in Diana's meant so much to her. I mean, you get a chance to actually look what how trauma informed Anne Shirley. Oh, and how it created who she was and why it was off-putting to the people in her community, uh, which doesn't come through as much, you know, in that that earlier adaptation. Because you look at Megan Follows and you're like, who wouldn't love this child? Right. Who wouldn't want to have her around? That's right. And this one leans in a little bit more to how trauma informs friendships and relationships mm. and school. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a very grown-up version. Let's get like them it. to do Pollyanna next. Right. Because <laughs> I feel so like good. Pollyanna, the, a, an actual how trauma informed Pollyanna's life would be such a different book and movie than than what we experienced with the one from the 60s. Absolutely. I think you look at the space in between um, what is said and what actually it means. And I think yeah, that would be a great one to redo. I feel that way about a number of children's classic literature where we've gotten so beatific about it mm. that we forget that it actually has, you know, teeth and legs and muscle. That's the reason why it's a classic. There's something raw in there. Right. And I, you know me as my Enneagram 7-ness, I kind of lean toward Pollyanna belief in the world. And then I'm like, but Annie, do you remember she didn't have parents? Like <laughs> it couldn't have been <laughs> as... As beautiful as they made it. And that one, though that is the central of her story is that she can find good in everything. I'm like, what if, if that was made in 2019, how do we treat her differently? Yeah. Do you remember back? I don't know if you would remember this or not, but back in the, I want to say late 80s or early 90s, there was a new updated version of Pollyanna called Polly. No, I don't know. With, oh my gosh, it was so good, but it was uh, an African American community. Oh, I would love that. They reset it there, and it's like, I want to say it was um, Felicia Rashad played Aunt Polly, and Keisha Knight Pulliam Brown played, or uh, played, uh, she was Rudy on The Cosby Show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it was so good. The I am music. literally Googling it right now. We literally taped it on our VHS and would rewatch it. The songs are so good. Oh, okay, it's on for everyone who wants to watch. It is available as a DVD on, it's got to be streaming somewhere, but it's a DVD on Amazon. I keep waiting for Disney Circle or Disney Plus to add it. It's got to. Yeah, because it's it's a Wonderful World of Disney movie. So I bet yeah, it was like Plus one of those Sunday night Wonderful World of Disney movies. Yes. Remember when they used to do yes. those on Sunday nights? Yeah. Okay, are you in the Disney Plus world? Did you get it for the kids? And for you and your husband? Oh, of course. <laughs> well, I know. So for, for the kids is a nice excuse. Yeah, right, right, right. Because <laughs> I haven't done it yet, but I keep getting so close. Oh, it's so worth it. It's been so much fun. I mean, honestly, I think Brian and I sat and scrolled through it, hollering movie names at each other because yeah. we were like, we, we hadn't thought of them in so long. I was like, the Mighty Ducks. Who doesn't right. love the Mighty Ducks? Right. <laughs> That's it. It just seems like what they've done is given our children access to all these movies they don't know they're going to love yet. And they've given us access to movie and TV shows that we have forgotten how much we love them. The nostalgia is high there. When I saw Darkwing Duck and oh, DuckTales, I was like, come on, take my money. <laughs> okay, so what is it about nostalgia, Sarah? Why does it get us like this? And not just at Christmas. It gets me year-round, and I think it gets most people. What is it about Disney Plus pulling out all those old movies for us that is moving people to spend their money like this? Yeah, that is a great question. I remember hearing once that there's certain Enneagram types that are actually more past-focused. I don't know if sevens are or not, but I'm I'm a nine, and I know that we are. Like, Mm -hmm. we tend to live in the past almost a little bit more. And and that's certainly true for me. I mean, I think that a lot of times, whether it's something silly like Darkwing Duck or the traditions at Christmas or whatever else it is where we kind of find ourselves, I think that what we're longing for is the feeling we had in that moment. Maybe even the person that we were then. Yeah. And sometimes we can recast our own memories to make them more, I don't know if the word is pleasant, but more simple. Yes. Or. I think simple is exactly um, the right word. How does, how this, I'm like, hey, Sarah, here's all the stuff I'm just going to barrage you with that I didn't prep you for at all. (laughs) But if we were having tea at your house, this is what I would ask you next. I would say, okay, so where does nostalgia meet our faith? Hmm. 
That's a good question. Because they must they must have something to do with each other because they both kind of ping the same place in my guts. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, one of the central longings, I think, of the soul is for home. Mm. Right? And so I think that oftentimes that's what happens when we meet Jesus or when we learn something new, maybe about Jesus or some aspect of our faith, there's a sense of homecoming to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not so much that Good. we meet Jesus for the first time. It's more this sense of, oh, there you are. Yeah. Like I always knew you were, I always knew you would be there. There was something in our heart that just kind of, it feels like nostalgia because it feels like coming home. Maybe I don't know if nostalgia is the right word as much as it is this wistful homesickness that all of a sudden feels like that need gets met. Yeah, that longing that you have yeah. for another world, that longing you have for justice or for things to be made whole again, mm-hmm. uh, you get a glimpse of it. I think in Jesus, I think that feels incredibly true, and it, and it, and I believe you more than I believe some people because of what I know you've walked through in the last year. Not just losing Rachel, but also you're like health has gone sideways pretty significantly in the last year. Am I remembering, wasn't it about last Christmas that you said you were going to have to stop traveling as much? Yeah, the last Christmas was when I finally kind of came forward with it, but it's been about three years um, or almost three years now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I think that a lot of people though, right? I mean, anybody, you live longer than a hot second, you've, you've suffered, you've had experienced loss. Um, a lot of the things that I have walked through have been very ordinary, but that doesn't make them less poignant or mm-hmm. resetting, yeah. I guess. One of the things my counselor and I talked about, and we talked about it on site that I went to a couple of years ago, was we don't get to level each other's trauma and say like, right. oh, mine is capital T trauma and yours is lowercase t trauma. Because in everyone's life, what they have experienced has been the trauma for them. Yeah. I remember one time there was um, a blogger named Heather King who said, uh, your heart is hard. Hmm. Right. And that's one that I've, I've, one little phrase I've always carried with me is that your heart gets to be hard. Yeah. You don't have to stack it up against somebody else and say, well, it's not as hard as somebody else's or because other people have it harder. Right. But somehow this makes this, that reduces the suffering for you. It, it's not true. Your heart is hard and you right. can let it be hard. What do you know about God that you didn't know three years ago? I think that that was the core of what I was wanting to write through with um, miracles and other reasonable things was this sense of your when your vantage point to God, you get the legs kicked out from underneath it. Mm. You can think that God has disappeared. And instead, what I have found is that I had a new vantage point with which to see the tenderness and kindness of Jesus. Mm. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of things that have been, I think, reset about God, about prayer healing. Um, I think probably the central thing, though, for me that has been the last three years and just continues to be reinforced, and of course, losing Rachel was another experience of this understanding, was just the power and immediacy and just need we have for Emmanuel, for God Mm. with us. That it's not about Jesus only, you know, God's only with the winners, or with the ones who get their prayers answered, or the ones who get healed, or the ones who never experience loss or have their lives turn out according to some big star chart they have in the sky of what it means when you get your prayers answered, that it's got to be God with us when we're in the gutters. It has Mm -hmm. to be God with us when we're in hospital rooms Mm -hmm. and standing at caskets and in our kitchens when we are at home alone at night. It's got to be God with us in all of those moments of our life. And that to me has been the probably the biggest lifeline uh, for the last last little while is just how true it is that God is with us. I feel like that is a theme that you kind of wove in miracles and other reasonable things too, was just like a what if you stopped and looked at what was happening and found God with you in it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that sometimes we almost have like, well, I mean, I can't speak for anybody else, but I mean, I came up in the word of faith movement yeah, and the prosperity gospel movements, you know, which is its own set of baggage. But right, 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 right. <laughs> everybody had some, that's mine. Yep. You know, and, and I, yet I can't characterize that or make fun of it because again, a lot of the people with, who introduced me to Jesus were incredibly sincere and love, love the Lord very, very much. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there was almost this sense though of you would see getting your way as a blessing 
And you would see that as like a mark of God's favor. Ooh, Sarah. Right. Yep. Say that. And I think a lot of us internalize this prosperity gospel, even if we like to, you know, derisively make fun of, you know, of people who, mm-hmm. who practice that mm-hmm. openly, right? Internally, we still feel like if I'm good and if I have enough faith and if I live right, yeah. then things will go the way that I want. Yeah. We have this if this, then that kind of formula for God. Yeah. And when you get that kicked out from underneath you, you know, I think a lot of people realize that then God unbecomes, mm. right? And right. then then in that space, I think you almost have to be committed to that unbecoming and to that unlearning of the gods that we have created in our own mind in order to have even room and space for God to become, right? And so, yeah, I think I think there's a lot of people who probably have a story similar to that. Hey friends, just interrupting this conversation with Sarah to tell you about our friends over at Able. I've loved that they've been a part of a couple of these episodes in a row just because I think so, so highly of them. You guys know Able is a lifestyle brand that is challenging the culture of fashion industry by creating transformative opportunities for women. In short, Able is focused on women, wages, and jobs, and they make beautiful handmade products to help us make that focus possible. Their leather bags, their jewelry, their denim, all the apparel, the shoes, you guys. I just like can't quit it. I can't quit any of it. They're made locally here in Nashville, but also globally in Ethiopia, Mexico, Brazil, and India. And y'all, they're just really offering us this opportunity to gift differently this season for the sake of more jobs, to celebrate women for better wages. Their products make meaningful gifts because they transform the lives of the women who made them. Not only do they have amazing bags and clothes, which you guys know I love, use, and wear, but they also have some incredible jewelry. I currently, in this very moment, am wearing the gold stick earrings, and I love them so much. I wear them all the time. They make a great gift. I think y'all will love them. So make sure when you hop on the website, livefashionable.com, go check out the jewelry and look at the gold stick earrings, and let's be twinsies. Also, 25% off between now and Christmas Eve. Everybody listening, all of my friends get 25% off if you use the code that sounds fun 25 And you may want to hurry on those earrings because y'all are all hearing this at the same time and they don't have a bazillion pair. So go ahead, go get you some gold stick earrings. That sounds fun 25 at livefashionable.com. And thanks to our sponsors, Third Love. I love when you guys walk up to me in public and tell me about the products you are using that you know that I love, that I love telling you about. In fact, someone tweeted at me yesterday and said how much they enjoy the things we talk about here on the show. And I take that super seriously. So I am so thankful that Third Love is one of the companies I love telling you all about and partnering with. I just love Third Love. Third Love does bras differently. They believe that every woman deserves to feel comfortable and confident every day. With the right kind of support, they help her do this. The bras are designed to fit you, not for you to fit the bra. They're designed with measurements from millions of women's Their bra styles are made to fit your life. They have over 80 bra sizes, but know that the only one that matters is yours. They make bras we can all believe in, and every bra is backed by their perfect fit promise with 60 days to wash and wear. And if you don't love it, returns are always free. Every bra is made for your comfort with memory foam cups, no slip straps, and smooth, scratch-free band with a printed label. And they donate all their gently used bras to women in need. And remember, if you've heard us talk about Third Love before, the Fit Finder quiz is so easy. It's how I picked out which one was right for me. It's how you should do the same. You answer just a few simple questions to find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Over 15 million women have taken the quiz to date, and it's actually fun to take in less than a minute to complete. And it's important because shape size matters as much as anything else when you're finding a good fitting bra. And so Third Love will help you identify your size and shape and find styles that fit your body. And I love that they donate all their gently used return bras to women in need, supporting charities in their local San Francisco Bay Area and across the United States. And so far, Third Love has donated over $15 million in bras. Third Love knows there's a special perfect bra for every one of you gals out there. So right now, they're offering my friends 15% off your first order. So go to thirdlove.com slash soundsfun right now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash sounds fun for 15% off today. And now back to the show. 
one of the things, I mean, I don't have a single friend who I agree with on everything, but one of the things I love about you, Sarah, is what you just said too about like those people who raised me in a way that I don't agree with everything anymore, they really love Jesus. Like I know that they love Jesus, even if there were mistakes made. I would imagine that there are a lot of us who have people like that in our history who we need to have the gracious stance toward. How did you get there? How did you get to where you could speak kindly about the people like that who are different than how you think? Well, I mean, listen, I haven't always. <laughs> I, mean, I, have, I have 15 years of blogging to show That's you right. if you would like to think I have been spiritually mature. Uh, <laughs> same, same. What's on the internet never goes away. Right. Listen. Oh my goodness. You know, I think that one of the things that I have found, and I, I think that this was something that um, I began to lean into really quite a lot when I was writing uh, Out of Sorts, um, which is a book about, you know, deconstruction and that buzzword of, of wilderness. And, you know, a lot of what we do at Evolving Faith is what we were trying to do anyway, was create a space and an oasis for people who were in the wilderness, because it's not a season of life that really the church tends to shepherd super well, mm-hmm. um, to put it mildly. And so, you know, I think that one of the things that I began to realize a number of years ago was that it had to be deconstruction or an unlearning and relearning of God or an experience in the wilderness. If all it does is make you change your opinions, but still make you just as much of a fundamentalist, then you're missing the point. Oh, Sarah. Come on, girl. Right. I don't know if you're standing so up, but you're preaching. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to, you know, it's not a matter of just simply saying, you know, well, here's what I used to think. And now I think this, and now I'm just even more right. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make sure that everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. I think that the path of spiritual formation is less about getting everything right and more about being made right, mm-hmm. in, in right posture towards God and towards one another. I think that until you get to a place of being able to affirm the humanity and to forgive mm-hmm. the people who built the edifices that you eventually needed to tear down, right. I think that in a lot of ways, we are still, you know, journeying, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think that at, at the, the place when you, you begin to come to is you realize that everybody's there. Right. That nobody has has it all figured out. Nobody's right. all right. right. And at the end of the day, if all you have become is a more progressive or liberated uh, form of a fundamentalist, then you still aren't being conformed into the image of Christ. Mm. We're all just still becoming. And part of the incarnation of Christ is becoming more like our call is actually to be more like an infant if we want to see the kingdom of God. Yeah. Instead of Absolutely. feeling like you know more. I feel like maybe God's asking me to know less. <laughs> yeah, I think that having that posture, I think it requires a lot of humility. Um, Rachel always used to say that deconstruction usually b- begins with like one really dangerous question, and it's what if I'm wrong, mm. right? Which is so scary for people. It is. It is really scary, right? Yeah. There's this sense of a threshold there, yeah. you know, this thing that you have always thought or this thing you have always believed or this thing you've always been certain about. Um, and then all of a sudden there's that question, what if I'm wrong mm. or what if we're wrong? And I think that there's an inherent humility to that, that just is, is a good way to keep your, your, um, your heart open towards one another, but also open to the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't mm-hmm. think that any of us end up in deconstruction by accident. I think we often end up in those spaces of wilderness because of the invitation of the Holy spirit. We're there yeah. because of our faithfulness, not yeah. our faithlessness. Yeah. Sometimes to me, the phrase deconstruction feels like the path is already drawn out. Like if I'm going into deconstruction, then I'm going to look like this on the other side. No. Right. And I I feel like when you said wilderness, I thought, yeah, that rings really true because you just have no idea what's going to happen on the other side of 40 days in the wilderness. No, you don't. Or 40 years. <laughs> and I've always, you know, I've I've grown to really like the, the metaphor of wilderness, and I use it probably, you know, to a point where it should be on some sort of like progressive Christian writer bingo center square. <laughs> 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 Up there with like holding space. Right. <laughs> oh my gosh, holding. we're about to play this game, holding space. That's exactly right. <laughs> Rachel is the middle. She's for sure the middle. Everyone gets to mark off her. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that there's this sense, though, of um, the thing that I have learned, too, in terms of the wilderness is that it's usually the birthplace of your intimacy with God, Mm. because all of those things are stripped away, right? And as you tend to travel through the wilderness, all of a sudden, all those precious and beautiful things that you thought meant so much to you become too heavy. 
Yeah. And you had to cast you can't them down. do it. Yeah. You can't carry it, carry it any longer. You find oasis, you find feasts in the wilderness, you find a lot of us out there. Um, and there's this sense of, um, I don't know, uh, camaraderie almost to that, mm. that I like. Yeah, because there is something about being out in the wilderness and seeing one other person out there. <laughs> Right. Being like, I thought I was the only one. I feel like that's like 90% sometimes of what you'll hear from someone is I, you feel just a little less crazy and a little less alone. Yeah. Be like, oh, I'm not the only one asking these questions. I'm not the only one who's wondering about this. Um, I'm not the only one who's, you know, questioning Mm -hmm. um, this aspect of, of, you know, life or faith or whatever else it is that has always been packaged as this is the absolute truth uh, to me. And so, yeah, I think it, it can feel a little bit dangerous and risky, but at the same time, exhilarating. And I think that recapturing and reclaiming a sense of curiosity and wonder about our faith mm-hmm. is always something that, that is good. Yeah. How do you draw that line for yourself? And I'm thinking about my friends who are listening and wondering it, the line between wondering and walking into the desert. Like when is it switch over from I'm asking some hard questions to some to some people I trust in my life to like, oh, no, I'm I'm lost out in the desert and I don't know where to go next. Um, you know, I wish that we could like draw those lines for ourselves. I know. Sorry. I know. <laughs> right? You can't Wouldn't be surprised be nice? that I did that to you. I'm so sorry. I'm like, can you know, you don't need to answer, say sorry Sarah? at all. <laughs> you don't need to say sorry at all. I think that that's the question. And that oftentimes I feel like sometimes there's a threshold mm-hmm. that we will sit at with our questions and our doubts and our people we'll go and talk to you and things like that. And I think a lot of times we will sit there on that threshold because it's it's interesting mm-hmm. right i mean it's fun to sit around with your buddies and talk about you know well let's figure out what we really think about the atonement and you know do you take this passage of scripture literally or not you know or yeah. you know whatever else it is it would be nice if you could script for other people what a resurrection will look like mm. but it's usually by its very nature very unexpected and surprising i think that sometimes we get this sense almost when we come to that mo- those moments or those those seasons in our life. They're not even necessarily just moments, but more like it can be over a long drawn out period of time. Mm-hmm. You feel like you have two options, and your options are either to double down, right? You stick your fingers in your ears. Right. I'm fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. What questions? I have no questions. This is scary. I'm terrified. Let's just go ahead and you know sing all. You know, I just need to sing all the songs I know and go sign up for more Bible studies, just work harder and, and pretend everything's okay. Mm. And you know, I've listen, tried that. I've tried that. We have all tried that. Yeah. And then you think then you realize kind of the limits of that or, you, or something happens and, and then you feel like your only other option then is just to burn down everything, right? right. To walk away from right. everything you once right. held precious. Every All of a sudden, nothing's true. Nothing means anything. And the people who you were alongside of can even become your enemies. And I mean, listen, I have done this one too, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. There's this, you know, this burn it down kind of thing. But I find that the longer you you press into that, you realize that there's actually that third way. And that is that you you lean into it. You There's the way through the wilderness is through. Yeah. It reminded of that story in, uh, in Exodus about how these Israelites were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Mm. And there's this sense of you may not feel led, you may feel very alone. And yet at the same time, doubling down or burning down are not necessarily your healthiest options as much as they are to lean into the very things that you're afraid of, to uh, open your eyes and to press forward into those questions and into those wonderings, into those doubts, and trust that God is there too, that there's no place that is absent from God's love. And so even in the wilderness, even in the scariest places, even in um, the, the most loss or um, the potential of losing community or, you know, wherever else it is we may find ourselves, that God is already there too. Mm. And so I feel like there has to be uh, maybe a a trust to that perhaps or an invitation to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And what a healthy question to ask ourselves, am I doubling down or burning down? Because if I'm doing one of those two things, I need to look for the third way. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things that we were really surprised about with with even evolving faith was the number of people who came that first year and were like almost complaining because it was super Jesus-y. Mm. And I mean, which shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody. Sure. Rachel and I were, were super Jesus-y. Right? Right. <laughs> so, right. And a lot of our own our own journey of 
um, deconstruction and reconstruction or, you know, however you want to put up, put, you know, words on that or whatever else Mm -hmm. has been for us almost this, maybe a stubbornness, but Mm -hmm. this sense, which would not be out of character for me, (laughs) (laughs) but there's almost a stubbornness for me of saying like, no, I still want this story. I still want these words. I still believe there's such value in being around the table together. I believe there's a value in having the, the, you know, it doesn't mean that just because my relationship with scripture is different, doesn't mean that I don't honor and love it. I probably love and honor it more now on the other side yeah. than I did when, you know, before I had, had questioned it or leaned into it. And so right. I think that sometimes there's almost a stubborn reclaiming too of saying, no, 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 no. I want to hold on to those words. I want to hold on to words like, you know, sin and salvation and hope and shalom and goodness. Mm-hmm. Like those, those words have teeth and muscle to me. I want to yeah. hold on to them. Tell me how that, all these things we're talking about right now, this that you like you talked about your own deconstruction and reconstruction and your own faith journey. How has that changed Advent and Christmas for you? Oh, completely. Really? <laughs> you know, I think that this is one of the things that I I know that there's a lot of uh, loss that accompanies um, anyone's season of deconstruction, right? People, even you know, n- naming that or acknowledging that can be hard for people to say, "No, look, I have lost. I've lost a version yeah. of who I was. Yeah. I've lost, um, you know, maybe a church or a community of people who were not able to keep pace with me mm-hmm. as I changed." Mm-hmm. Um, and there can be a lot, of, you know, a, a series of, of small losses that just kind of add up over time. But one of the things that I have found is that um, there's also a really beautiful experience of having things added to you. Mm. And, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about wonder and curiosity, but I remember one thing that really bothered me when I would read scripture about the Christmas story, for instance, was around how, you know, we kind of tell and and have talked about the Christmas story of Mary and Joseph and Mary delivering alone in a barn and, you know, them being, you know, just really abandoned in that moment. And it's the loneliness of it. And I think especially because I had an experience of having an unattended birth in a parking garage. I did not <laughs> know that son. part of your life. Did you, did you not know that story? No. Oh my gosh. Oh my, my son, gosh. Joe, he's like 11 and a half now. So <laughs> but we you had him by yourself came, in a parking lot. Well, Brian was there, but and there was this sense of um, just the loneliness of that yeah. and the trauma of it and the fear of it and the what ifs and that I carried for Mary, you know, even when we would talk about those things. And I know we like to dress them up with guilt and, you know, sparkle crowns mm-hmm. and all sorts of things, mm-hmm. but it is a thin place. Yeah. Giving birth is a thin place. And that experience really changed how I read the Christmas story. And then, of course, through this period of deconstruction and learning to read um, new contexts and learning to read scripture through new eyes and listen to different people, I was so excited to realize that the whole way I'd understood the Christmas story was actually wrong. Wow. And sometimes it's just a delight to be wrong. Yeah, like it's just so wonderful right. to be wrong right. because I had this image in my head of how it went. But instead, I found out that like, oh, no, this word actually means that it was like a home. And that she like she likely had, you know, midwives there and that there was no way that she would have been by herself and Mm -hmm. that there would have been uh, women alongside of her, that she um, was warm and well lit. Like there was a sense of hospitality to it and of being in someone's home because, again, the the separation between animals and people was not, you know, it was upstairs and downstairs. I mean, again, it's just one of those, you know, small stories, right, that often happen where it just will recast scripture or recast stories that you thought you knew and just make me love them even more because, oh, I thought I knew, but I didn't know. And now I've learned something new and it actually is beautiful and healing. It's one of my favorite things about using apps like Blue Letter Bible is when you read a story you've known forever, if you read it in other versions, or if you go and research some of the original words, you go, wait, he didn't say that at all. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's the downside of only knowing English, Sarah. (laughs) I know, right? Well, I think even, I mean, we can't help but bring our lives and our experiences and our place in the world to the text, right? I think that's why it's so important to read it, not only in cooperation with, you know, education and and learning and, you know, all the wonderful things within community as well with one another, but with the Holy Spirit, 
right? I mean, I'm charismatic, right? So I'm like, listen, let's just bring the spirit. Yes. <laughs> we bring all this in and just let ourselves be taught, right? Yes, yes. Um, okay, can we take a couple of minutes? This is a left turn and talk about your Christmas gift guide. Oh, yeah, of course. I love talking about that. One of the reasons we put you in the 12 days of Christmas and put you on the early side of the 12 days of Christmas is I want to make sure people go shopping on your gift guide. So for starters... Oh, that's so nice of you. Tell me, Well, I just love it. It's one of my favorite things that happens every year. So tell me how people can find it for starters. Do they have to be subscribed to Field Notes? Well, they should be either way. They should get your e-newsletter. But how do we find your Christmas gift guide? Well, I mean, I have links for it on all of my social media, but it is okay. available for anyone. And so if they were to go just to sarahbessie.substack.com and just kind of scroll down, they'll find the mm-hmm. Christmas gift guide there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but I've been doing it for a, a number of years now. And I just, honestly, I just love it. I love yeah. it because I try to pick businesses that are actively working to empower others. Yes. And so not only is their stuff great, but it does good work in the world. And there is literally nothing I love more than that email, like a couple weeks after it comes out, when these people who are just busting their butts and working so hard to make good in the world and mm-hmm. to make things right and to create not only good things, but empowered employment and freedom from sex trafficking and, you know, women uh, who are in vulnerable situations, uh, you know, having support. And I mean, just all these other wonderful things and them emailing and being like, we're sold out. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the best feeling. (laughs) I love it. Like, I love that today people are going to see miracles and other reasonable things get a little bump on Amazon because people are buying it today. I'm always like, this is the most fun part of this is when people get the products that I love and the books that I love. I know. Well, I'm really excited because that means I'm getting the downs bump. That's right. That's (laughs) right. Welcome. I mean, okay. So let me, I'm scrolling through your Christmas gift list that you made. I love so there's a ton of podcast friends on there. Preemptive Love, Abel, who's one of our big sponsors for the 12 days. Um, you've got, I just saw another one that I know. Oh, um, Noonday that we love, Thistle Thar- yep. Farms that we love. But I have never heard of this makeup company that you have on oh, here. Cheekbone. Do you love them? I do love them. You know, she it's uh actually a Canadian company. So I try to include a number of Canadian companies in there as well. Yes, thank you. Help us to learn Canada. I know. So Cheekbone is actually Indigenous owned and founded and operated. It's um, out in Ontario. And they do uh, cruelty-free beauty products. But I mean, honestly, their lip gloss is probably my favorite you one. Love in, it. My, in my, I do. I love it. I actually genuinely love it. And then of course, on the other side, they not only are you know, a lot, all of their models and all of their work as um, to kind of re- reframe or reshape uh, beauty in Indigenous communities, but also they do a lot of um, educational funding yeah, okay. uh, and representation work as well, which is awesome. Okay, so I'm going to ask a very uneducated question. When you say Indigenous, you don't just mean Canadian, like you don't just mean white person Canadian. No, it's uh, First Nations. So the, yeah, so I I think uh, Americans usually say Native Americans, right? Yes, 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 yes. But it wouldn't make sense for the, but I guess you are North American, so it would still be Native American. But Indigenous is the correct term for what we would have called Native Americans, First Nations. That's right. The ones that are actually indigenous to the land. The ones that were, that were here first. That's my, that's um, been the people group I have been pursuing on Instagram to start following people in, because I just haven't had any friends from there that are indigenous people in the U S or in Canada. So now I'm going to follow cheekbone. I'm adding it to my list of Instagram people I'm following. That's good news. Which one do you use? Do you use Twitter or Instagram more to meet new people? Um, I probably use Twitter more to meet new people. Yeah. Yep. I usually do I like too. Because it, it has a sense of eavesdropping to that's it, right. which I like. <laughs> that's right. That's right. They don't. Oh, this is how people talk when they don't know that white people are in a room. This is good. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Or they do know that we're here, but the, the conversation is not for us. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, that's how I felt. Actually, I'm reading a one of my Advent devotionals. I'm reading this one by Dante Stewart, who's an African American, and I messaged him this morning, Sarah, and I was like okay, I'm sharing your quotes. Is that okay with you? Because I know that this was actually, it, it was one of those where I, I feel like I'm eavesdropping because the the Advent devotional is written by a black man more specifically about their experience with Advent. And I was like, am I sharing this correctly? Just because I was like, I want to make sure 
that if I'm eavesdropping and taking your quotes, that you're okay with that. And he was like, sister, you're doing fine. You're take a breath. You're fine. <laughs> That's good news. But That's actually. good news. You know, if you're wanting to do more around the, um, I mean, there's a number of great books around the indigenous uh, faith go. conversation. R- Richard Twist is a, is a great teacher. Mark Charles just had a new book come out with uh, Soon Chan Ra about um, decolonization and faith. Uh, Caitlin Curtis's new book will be out next year and it's called Native. And it's about her experience of decolonizing her faith. Oh, wow. And it's really good. But one that I read this year that I just would love anybody who studies scripture to read is called Unsettling the Word, Biblical Experiments and Decolonization. Okay. And it is like a bunch of different essays from both Indigenous writers and scholars and also settler writers and scholars. Oh, wow. That experience of of what it means to kind of decolonize your reading of scripture, but also the application and living out of scripture as well. And I found it just, it's a, it's a good read, but you learn a lot and it's from a lot of different perspectives too. Oh, that's beautiful, Sarah. Thank you. We will link to those in the show notes so people can go find them. I just love, my dream is that people's Christmases are full of books. And right? so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh. Go get all those. Give them to everybody. <laughs> get miracles and other reasonable things and give it to everybody. I'm like, let's go. Let's just fill people with books again. Oh, I love that so much. I, you know, I can't remember what Nordic country it was that talked about how on uh, Christmas Eve, everybody gets a book. Oh, wow. That that's like the tradition is yeah. that everybody receives a new book on Christmas. I want to say it's Denmark. They do um, everything right. That doesn't And then everybody, me. everybody just stays up all, they stay up late reading. That's just what you do for Christmas Eve. Oh, it's everybody that, reads. Like, I should, we should live there. I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> we should live there. That feels just right. Okay, do you have time for like two more questions? Yeah, of course. Okay, will you tell me what I don't know about a Canadian Christmas? Because <laughs> y'all do Thanksgiving different than we do Thanksgiving. Right. So our Thanksgiving is the second Monday in October. Right. But nobody seemed to have told the stores lately because now all of a sudden Canadian stores are doing Black Friday and I'm like, what are we doing? Like, I, just, <laughs> I guess it doesn't, it was, it's not... Black fr- oh, whatever. Yeah. I want fifty percent off. It's fine. Whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not going to complain too much. <laughs> um, there's a lot of you know different traditions based on what part of Canada that you grew up in. You know, like there's certain meals that you would maybe have or or things that you would do uh, to have. So, for instance, one of the things that is pretty common in our area is to have a Christmas Eve candlelight service Uh where everybody goes and you just have everything's lit by candles. And then before you have gone to church, you put um, a tortillere in the oven, which is like a Quebecois meat pie. It's almost like, I don't know, it's like a savory meat pie, basically. And you put it in your oven beforehand, you go to church, you do your candlelight sing along and then you come home and it's being cooked and everybody can can eat there okay that sounds like a very smart idea why are we all not doing that before we go to church we go to (laughs) waffle house sarah so i just need you to know the downs family goes to waffle house on christmas eve there's nothing i think that that is a great choice it's a great choice Um, these are good decisions does christmas morning look any different for y'all than it does for us you know, I don't think it probably looks too different. I guess maybe it depends on the family where you grew up. I think every family maybe has some sure. different uh, traditions, but I th- think that most of them are, are fairly similar. So we tend to, you know, wake up with the kids and the kids all can do their stocking first mm. before Brian and I have to get up or, you know, when I was a kid before my parents got up. And yeah. so that was always like your, you can wake up at this time and you can open up whatever's in your stocking and then, you know, presents would begin. And it's always very like, polite when it comes to presents in Canada. Yeah. <laughs> it's not everybody opening at once. It's like one person and everybody will stop and look at while you open your present and everybody will make sure this stays in and then you go to the next person. It's so, <laughs> so it's polite. Gotta be a very, so there's got to be a cue. Everybody's got to make sure that they understand what's going on. It can take forever, but we will make sure everybody's <laughs> polite. <laughs> I love it. Um, one thing we're having everyone do, we've done it all year and we've dropped them in. There's a couple in this episode, but we've asked all of our guests to tell us one of their favorite Christmas stories. It can be something funny or sweet or a favorite recipe or anything. So will you tell us one of your favorite Christmas stories or memories? Oh, that is, I can't wait to listen to everybody's. These are always fun. I mean, a hundred and some odd people from the whole year of podcasting. I'm so excited about it. Oh, that is a great idea. You know, one that comes to my mind um, was Christmas of 2005. And my husband and I had been married for a while, and we had experienced a lot of miscarriages and loss. Mm. 
around pregnancy. Mm. And it, we were at my mom and dad's house and um, my granny, my mom's mom was there with us. And we, as a surprise, had wrapped up a pair of uh, baby shoes for my mom oh. to tell her that we were yeah. expecting a baby for again. And we had finally reached a milestone. Everything looked good. And so we felt okay to kind of actually be celebrating instead of yeah. scared. Sure. And I remember that because uh, it was actually the last Christmas that my mom's mom was with us. Okay. And she passed away that coming spring. And being able to have that Christmas moment with my mom and my granny and knowing that my daughter was on the way was a really special thing. I look at the pictures from that now, and I'm just really, really grateful for those moments. Oh, and that, yeah, Emmanuel, right? I mean, it just felt like right. God God was in the middle of that that timing and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's really, it's, again, my, my granny didn't really spend a lot of Christmases with us. She mm-hmm. uh, lived in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan uh, and, and Edmonton. And so we were, it was a rare thing for her to be there with us. And it mm-hmm. felt really special that she was there for that one in particular, especially before she passed away. Oh, I love it. Um, okay. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to talk about, Sarah? Well, I want to listen to you talk for a long time. <laughs> no, you don't. You're the dream here. I'm going to turn around and ask you like every single one of those questions no, back. I am, I am so turn thankful to talk. for you. I just think, I think so highly of you and like you so much. So I'm just honored you would take time to do this for us today. Oh, thank you so much. Our very last question that we always ask, because the podcast is called That Sounds Fun, what do you guys do for fun? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, there's a number of things that we, I love the name of your podcast, by the way. Thank you. It's great. <laughs> I think maybe because so often when we're talking about things of faith and, you know, life of faith, we forget fun. And mm. so I'm really glad that you do that. But anyway, that's you. neither here nor there. Uh, so for fun, there's a lot of things that we we like to do for sure. Um, we like to get outside probably is the number one, number one thing that we Year like round. to do. So it gets when, so cold up there, Sarah. I know it's not, you know, again, it's no, no bad weather, just bad clothes. Sure. And oh, so, that's a great <laughs> sentence. There's no bad weather, just bad clothes. I need to, I need that tattooed on my body. You're right. Yeah, you're totally fine. And so one of the things that we really love about the area where we live and that I have always loved about living in Canada and being from here is that it takes very little time to get somewhere where you're almost entirely alone. Oh, yeah. um, you're always right on the, on the edge of, um, being able to be in real wilderness mm. and being able to do things like that, especially as a family, but even by myself as an introvert, I really love to be just out in the woods or out in the mountains. Um, it's this nice, you can drive for five minutes or walk for 15 and be out in the middle of, of just some fresh air. And so that's definitely one of the things we like to do for fun, for sure. I love it. All right, friend. Thank you for making time to do this. I'm so grateful for you. Merry Christmas to your people. Thank you so much. Merry Christmas to you, Annie. I'm grateful for you. You guys, don't you love Sarah Bessie? Oh my gosh. I just think the absolute world of her. What a great part of our Christmas party. Every Christmas party needs a sweet Canadian and we are lucky enough that we got Sarah Bessie. I just think so, so highly of her. She's smart and kind. And I, yeah, I just couldn't say more kind things about her. I just adore her. Make sure you grab a copy of her new book, Miracles and Other Reasonable Things, a story of unlearning and relearning God. Also, make sure you check out her Christmas gift guide. We will link to it in the show notes. Um, It is amazing. She has so many of my favorite products on there, and I'm for sure going after that makeup. And make sure you've signed up for her field notes as well, the email that she sends out. It is a fun read. Make sure you give her a follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places. Tell her thanks for being on the show and how much you appreciate her. And if you need anything else from me, you know I'm embarrassingly easy to find. Annie F. Downs on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all the places you may need me. That's how you can find me today. The F stands for friend because I just adore Sarah Bessie. Proud to be her friend. And I think that's it for me today, friends. Don't forget, we've got a couple of Christmas stories here at the end for you from some of our guests throughout the year. I am having the most fun getting to hear these again. I think you are too, based on what you guys are saying to me on the internet. So we are through day four of our 12 days of Christmas party. I hope you are having as much fun as I am. This is like the dream. I'm having a ball. So I hope you are enjoying it too. So go out and do something that sounds fun to you and we will do the same and we'll see you back here tomorrow talking all about Enneagram and what gifts to give to the people in your life. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey. 
Hey, we're Steven and Jessica Rose of The Peach Truck and The Peach Truck Cookbook. And our favorite Christmas memories are... When I was a kid, we would all on Christmas Eve night sleep across the um, fold-out couch underneath the Christmas tree, go to sleep eventually with my siblings, and then wake up, you know, to a room full of presents the next morning. Uh Uh-huh. And I can't wait to... uh, implement that same thing with our kids. So. <laughs> That's really sweet. That's really sweet. I love that. <laughs> My favorite Ma'am. memory is similar. I loved laying as close as I could with my head to the trunk of the Christmas tree or the base. <gasps> oh, that's and really sweet. And looking at the Christmas tree that way. That, there was something magical about laying under it in that way. And um, I always just dreamed that season of life was, well, that season in the year is just so magical for me as a kid. I'm John Mark Comer. I'm the author of The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I'm also a huge fan of Christmas. So Christmas in my, I know there's a lot of Christmas haters in the world, but in my family of origin, Christmas was like the event of the year. Like half of the year would revolve around Christmas. Birthdays weren't that big of a deal. Other stuff wasn't that big of a deal. Vacation was never an expensive thing. But Christmas, that was like, that was the thing. And um, we always would, uh, we'd all sleep on the floor together the night before Christmas so that we could wake up as kids and rush into our parents' room. And we had this beautiful, really fun Christmas morning routine. And I love that we still do this to this day. So I'm 39, I'm the oldest of four kids. We're all married now. Half of us have children, there's like seven grandchildren. And we still will literally spend the night. Uh, my parents moved to kind of downsize. So actually now a lot of it's happening at my house. We'll spend the night, sleep on the floor as adults, kids, craziness, and then like wake up the next morning on Christmas together. And it's not every year anymore, it's not the same, but it's so fun. I mean, who's like, you know, who does that? And I just, I love being with my siblings in pajamas in our, you know, 20s and 30s around the fire Christmas morning. It's it's really fun. Hey, this is Chris Rice, and my latest album is Untitled Hymn, a collection of hymns. And my favorite Christmas memory was my brothers and I, probably four, five, and six years old, standing at my parents' bedroom door waiting for them to wake up so we could actually go into the living room and start opening presents. Where were you in the stack, four, five, or six? I was the third. Okay, so you're the baby. Uh, No, I was the second of four. Oh, sorry. Sorry, got that. Yeah, got that wrong. You're you're the second (laughs) of four. But I remember just that anticipation, and I still see like some old Polaroid pictures of, of us doing that just waiting for the go when you know dad would go out and do the last minute make sure everything's in place and whatever and then we're just all sitting there itching to get out and in our pajamas you know and then go boys and then we just all tear into the living room (laughs) and just pile into things and fall and just start trying to rip stuff open and everything but it wasn't very organized it wasn't okay your turn to open one Uh now your turn we would just ripped into everything and i just love that anticipation with all of my brothers just sitting there I just still feel it yeah and then when I see a picture of it it just makes me grin like yeah. yes those were good times 93 or so years ago <laughs> okay not quite that long ago but yes 